Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special unveiling fall edition of Ignite Radio Live. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio for the Almighty. We declare that truth. So, Stephanie, the beauty of fall is that there's a mystery and a wonder. It Something draws us in. Well, in just a moment, we're going to air the first program, very powerful program by the distinguished professor, Dr. Kenneth Calvert from Hillsdale College, who spoke at our very first Belief and Beverages Night on this theme of the great books, Wisdom of the Ages, that speak to our hearts, that draw us deeper into this relationship with Christ, particularly focusing on the incarnation. The title of his talk was The Clean Breeze of the Centuries, and just perfect. So we know you will enjoy that in just a moment. But speaking of going more deeply, we invite you to go more deeply with your family, with your spouse, with your friends. We have a particular focus on the home, of course, the domestic church. We invite you to go to ilovemyfamily.us where you will find the Live It Gathering Guide. Right now, as Greg said, entering into, I don't even want to say fall, the end of summer, (laughs) um, schedules are filling up, right? School has begun for most people. Practices have begun, sporting events, different clubs. It is crazy to try to claim family time, but it needs to be done. And so at ilovemyfamily.us, we provide tools to help you do that, namely the Live It Gathering Guide, where you can come together with a guide to help you talk and pray more intentionally, more deeply. There's family fun questions. There's the daily questions. There, there are the upcoming Sunday readings with reflection questions that you can discuss as a family to go there, to, to reunite yourselves as a family united in Christ. So before we get there, a quick commercial. We are so blessed by what we call kingdom builders. What are kingdom builder companies? They're those committed to the highest standards of professional excellence and building the kingdom who provide services and products. Which of us don't wish that we knew somebody in the auto industry, right, is an example where we know there's going to be quality when we call them up, and it's, whether it's car sales or services. Well, just as an example, the Cronin Auto family would be one of those examples. Quickly, Steph and I are going to go through these companies whom we ask you to check out at massimpact.us forward slash kingdom and support as they support our ministry. All-in-one payroll, Sherry Glenneman. Archbald Furniture Company, Pat and Patty McNamara. Becoming Gift, Andrew Reinhardt. Carruth Studio, Terry Langendurfer. Cronin Auto Family, Rich and Connie Cronin. Danbury Realtors, Tina Weisenberger. Endlish Environmental and Energy, Tammy Endlish. Imago Day Video Productions, Greg Schleter. Interstate Commercial Glass, Walter Erickson. Isabel Financial Services, Dennis Isabel. MFC Products, Miller Fastener and Components, Paul Miller. Resourcement, Jeffrey Barefoot. SJS Investment Services, Kevin Kelly. Turning Point Chiropractic, Drs. Jeff and Rachel Elmore. And the Walker Family Funeral Homes and Crematory, Ryan Hobbs. Again, just people of integrity and um, faith-filled businesses. They do support us. We ask you to support them. Check it out at massimpact.us forward slash kingdom for more information and how to contact them. With no further ado, we are now going to air our impactful program featuring Dr. Kenneth Calvert and our very first Belief and Beverages Night. By the way, the theme of these next four months is Incarnation 
Reflections on Reviving One Nation Under God. This was the very first. We invite you to join us. Mark your calendar for the third Thursday of every month. We have a 100-person maximum, so please register. MassImpact.us forward slash BNB. Now, with no further ado, our very first presenter. Dr. Kenneth Calvert is a professor at Hillsdale College where he's taught history since 1996. He holds a bachelor's degree from Wheaton College, master's degrees in divinity and theology from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and Harvard University, respectively, (laughs) and his PhD from Miami, Miami University of Ohio. Dr. Calvert is currently a candidate for a master's degree in theology and sacred scripture at the Augustine Institute, where he has completed four out of 12 courses, he's just notified me. So still learning, good job. In the winter of 1986, Dr. Calvert lived in Pakistan serving Afghan refugees during the Russian War. In 1988 and 89, he attended Bristol and Oxford universities as a visiting scholar. Since 1999, Dr. Calvert has served as director of the college's Oxford Study Abroad program. He received the Emily Doherty Award for Teaching Excellence in 1999, and in 2000, he was named Professor of the Year, though in 2020, he was again nominated for that distinction. Dr. Calvert also served as headmaster of Hillsdale Academy from 2002 until 2018. His research interests include the early history of Islam, the Roman Republic, and the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. He is published in scholarly and popular publications on ancient history, the history of Christianity, and classical education. Dr. Calvert and his wife, Beth, have been married for over 30 years. Their children, 32? 32, nice. (laughs) Their children, Joel, Claire, and Ian, have all attended Hillsdale Academy and Hillsdale College, and the Calverts recently welcomed their first granddaughter. At the beginning and end of every school year, Dr. Calvert delivers a matchbox matchbox lecture in which he lights a match and shows students how, like a flame, human life passes quickly. History demands that you answer the question Dr. Calvert will always tell students, what will you do with the time that you have been given? There's no better man to speak about the history of the nation, the history of the faith, and how best to preserve both with the time that we have been given. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Calvert. Um, it's it's a, a real honor to be here with you. Um, I've known Schleters of one sort or another for many years. In fact, when I was at Miami of Ohio, uh, there was a young undergraduate, uh, Nate Schleter, uh, that I ran into. And in those days, uh, I was a Calvinist. And he talks about how annoying I was. And it's true. It's true. It was bad. Um, And then he came to Hillsdale uh, as a young professor. And very recently, uh, 2018, uh, our whole family actually began with my oldest son in 2016. uh, And then 2018, the whole family came into the church. And that's, thank you. Yeah. Well, you know. Uh, the Lord had to do a whole lot of work, and it's been it's been a real real joy uh, to come into the fullness of faith. Um, so that's been wonderful, and uh, to be a part of uh, the lives of the young people uh, like Haley and John Paul and so many uh, at Hillsdale College. If you haven't been to Hillsdale College, come come and visit us. All right, um, I'm going to start with this handout, and it's got a wonderful title on moralistic therapeutic deism. All right, and you're wondering, well, what in the world is that about? Okay, Uh, I'm gonna let you take it home and read it, and I would encourage you to take a look at it. 
This was a study done um, by Christian Smith at uh, Notre Dame University. And what they did was they asked thousands of young people, of teenagers, uh, about their religious beliefs. You know, what do you believe? And you find here on the first page a list of the really essential ideas that these young people, these teenagers, consider as they're thinking about God and religion. Number one, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. All right. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. All right. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. All right. And what they found was that in across Christian denominations, including Catholics and Protestants, across uh, Judaism, across a variety of religious traditions, these are the essential tenets of faith of what we would call the current generation, all right? There's no idea of sin, of fallenness, of a need for salvation, okay? There is no need for really Christ to come into the world unless I need him, you know, because my car broke down, right? Um, There is a real problem among uh, young people in understanding what the Christian faith is about, indeed who God is, who we are in God's eyes, and what our worship is about. It is a real vacuum of anything true and anything genuine. What it is, is very comfortable. And if you think about our culture, you think about Western culture, Western civilization at this point, it's all about just feeling happy and comfortable, right? That's what it's about. And do not preach to me a religion or a, you know, a faith in a God that means that I have to change, that means that I have to be different, that means that I'm going to be unhappy or troubled, right? That is really where we are and what we're looking at. Um, often when I'm talking to fellow Christians and professors, uh, you know, who want to reach out to the, you know, to the culture, they talk about being relevant, all right? And my, my question always is, well, what does that mean, all right? And is a Christian supposed to be relevant to the culture? Yeah, but a Christian first and foremost is to be relevant to their Lord, to God, right? And so this is, this is the tension that we deal with. And honestly, if you want to look at and think about the deep hole that we've dug for ourselves in this country, in my mind, it starts with this. Because these young people don't hold to these ideas just on their own. They learn it from adults. They learn it from teachers. They learn it from even their clergy, right? And we are in a very, very deep and troubling spot because we have abandoned serious, true doctrine, okay? And you use the word doctrine, you use the word dogma, and people think, oh, there goes those Catholics again, right? 
Uh, they're so mean and they're so evil in all of their doctrines. Well, we're going to get at that a little bit here um, and think about that. One thing I want to say as well as I'm introducing this topic is this. Um, this is nothing new. One of the great struggles that the world has had with Christianity is its claim to exclusivity. There's only one salvation. There's only one Savior. There's only one way to heaven. All right? If you look at the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, that's exactly what they hated. You see that all throughout. What do you mean there's only one way? We've got all kinds of gods, and all these gods are just as good as your Jesus. Right? So it's nothing new. And this tension and this temptation for Christians to water things down, to make things nice, to make things palatable, all right, that's, that is a, a big temptation for Christians, and it's always been there. So in some ways, all right, we're, we're not living in anything new. We're not seeing anything new, but we are seeing the most recent, what, permutation of the world's reaction to faith and to who God is. Now, I want to jump to this word incarnation that you have as your theme. Because in my mind, well, I'll tell you what, I became Catholic because of the doctrine of the incarnation. All right. Um, And what is the doctrine of the incarnation? That the God of the universe, the God who created all things, became flesh and blood, right? And that is something that the Christians have always preached. I mean, we preach the atonement, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the incarnation brings about. But you can't have a body rising from the dead without first having that body, right? Which he receives from his mother. The incarnation is God invading the world, coming into time. And it is this idea that as Christians, we cannot deny, we cannot ignore, and we cannot not proclaim. That should be at the forefront of all of our proclamation of the gospel, that he came into this world. And therefore, that means that you can't just be kind of blasé, therapeutic, moral deism, well, God's here when I need him. What's important for us to understand and what Catholics have as a, as a certain and very important doctrine is this idea is that not only did he come, but he is with us literally in every Mass. That incarnation is constant all right, and cannot be denied. Wherever two or more are gathered, what does it say? He is there. And is that just metaphorical? No. He really is there. He is here with us, all right? And if God is physically, really, actually with us, then we have to pay attention to that. We've got to pay attention to that, and we have to preach that, and we have to make sure that what Christ taught his disciples, brought to his disciples, has to be preached to the world in a way that is not embarrassed or apologetic, but confident and strong. Not, not without charity. Charity is a must, of course. But we cannot be Christians without proclaiming 
the incarnation. And this gets me to um, another part of my, my lecture, and that is a very important work on the incarnation, this whole doctrine of the incarnation, by a man named Athanasius of Alexandria. All right. Uh, Athanasius is my patron saint, and I can tell you that I'm entirely convinced that Athanasius's prayers uh, helped to bring me into the church. Because when I was a Protestant, as a theologian, I was reading Athanasius on the Incarnation every Christmas. I did that for you know, like 30 years. And then finally it stuck, you know, all right. <laughs> finally it clicked. But Athanasius of Alexandria, he is dealing with a culture that will not believe that God would become part of this, of this world. And first of all, what he has to do is argue that God did indeed create the world against the Epicureans who said that, well, the, 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 the world kind of came into existence on its own. Does that sound familiar? Nothing new under the sun, right? Or the Platonists who said, yeah, there's a God and he created everything out of preexistent matter. There was stuff already there and he just decided to put it together. You know, kind of bringing God down to more of a human level as a craftsman. And what is important to understand with Athanasius is that all of that is false. That the God of the universe, out of love, out of his creativity, brought into being ex nihilo, out of nothing, all that is. And then the man and woman that he created fell. And what he did was he became man, all right? The second person of the Trinity became man so that we might be recaptured. We might be brought back to him and brought into right relationship with him. All right, are you with me so far? So that the incarnation of God, Jesus, is the creator who becomes part of the created in order that we might be saved. How powerful is that? And, and don't think of God as just some local Zeus. We're talking about the God of the universe who is at the farthest ends of the universe. How far out does the universe go? You don't know that. I don't know that. Nobody knows that, right? And by the way, how small is small? We're still trying to figure out how small subatomic particles go. Nobody knows. And God governs all of that from the smallest to the furthest. And he's the one who comes into this world. So can it be just kind of a blasé, well, maybe God is kind of, you know, here, maybe not? No. No, we're talking about the God of the universe who comes into this world and is part of this. This cannot be blasé. This cannot be a bunch of platitudes. All right. This has to be understood for the immensity that it is. And this is what Athanasius is after. He says, it, um, the creator fittingly became what he had created to save what had fallen. There is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. The God of creation is also about the God of salvation. All right. And this is, this is important. This is the fourth century. All right. This is over a thousand years ago that this guy's writing. Do we have the same questions today that we did then? Yes. Are we struggling with the same ideas today that they did then? Of course. 
not exactly the same, but it's human nature. It's the human problem, right? And what Athanasius is opening up for us is this idea that incarnate God has done this for us, and we must pay attention to it. Um, One thing that Athanasius brings out, by the way, is that the one person who talks most about hell is Jesus. And do we think Jesus is a soft, easy person to come into contact with? No. We've got to remember that. And so incarnate God is giving us a message that not only is beautiful in its love for us, but is also challenging and difficult in its challenges to us. All right, really, really important for us to get after. Now, there has been a, a, a wonderful translation of St. Athanasius on the Incarnation by a woman named Sister Penelope Lawson, um, and she was a friend of C.S. Lewis. And so when this translation of Athanasius on the Incarnation came out, Lewis wrote the introduction, a wonderful little um, essay called On Reading Old Books. Why would you read old books, right? I mean, books are old, they're irrelevant, they're not relevant, right? Well, C.S. Lewis says, no, of course not. You know, think about this. How often do we think, well, those people 500 years ago, how could they have believed that? What a bunch of numbskulls. We're much better than they, right? Ever hear, ever think about that? Or have you ever heard people say that? You know, I hear, I hear, you know, young college students say that all the time. You know, John Paul thinks he's better than everybody else. And he says, you know, uh, no, he doesn't really. But, uh, but you know, he'll say, so, you know, you'll, you'll hear, you know, people say, how could they have believed that? You know, what, what silly things to believe? Well, think of it this way. And we historians think this way. In 500 years, if they're looking back at us, what are they going to say about a culture that can, can't define what a woman is, Right? In 500 years, they're going to be looking back at us and saying the same thing. And so what C.S. Lewis is telling us in this essay on reading old books is read old books and figure out what they're trying to say to each other. There's always a context. And some of those old books aren't worth reading again, but many of those old books are worth reading over and over again because they have things to teach us. Just as any book that's written today, right, is written in a context, in 500 years, most of the books that are written today, nobody will even pay attention to. They'll all be on the dustbin of history. But there will be a few that will survive and survive the test of time and be worth reading in 500 years. Do you see what I'm getting at here? That we have to understand that old books teach us about the ancient past and old books teach us about what people were thinking about and pass on truths to us. Which is why um, uh, C.S. Lewis is writing this essay at the beginning as an introduction to Athanasius on the Incarnation. It's this idea that you should read this old book because it's worth reading today. 
in this age. And by the way, it will probably be worth reading. Well, I think it will be worth reading in 500 years. You are listening to a very special episode of Ignite Radio Live featuring a talk from our Belief in Beverage Night. Please join us for these wonderful evenings the third Thursday of each month. Find out more information at massimpact.us forward slash BNB. Listen to this. This is from Lewis. The only palliative to this, the only uh, uh, answer to this problem of dealing with modernity in the modern world, he says the only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. When we think of the centuries and we think of old books, we think of dust. Right. Maybe we think of, you know, going into an old bookstore and it's dusty and, 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 and smelly and maybe a little bit of mold. Um, there's some truth to that. And, but we don't often think of the ancients and old books being a clean sea breeze coming through our minds. So this idea that Lewis has of this clean sea breeze blowing through our minds and helping us come to terms with what we're dealing with today is is a very interesting and powerful idea, I think. To listen to the ancients, to listen to those who come before us, and to know that just because we've thought it up doesn't mean it's right and doesn't mean it's the most um, powerful idea. All right. So Lewis goes on to talk about how for Christians, one of the best things we can do to experience this clean sea breeze is to listen to, read the ancient fathers, you know, whether it be Athanasius, whether it be Augustine, or whether it be Aquinas. He encourages Christians to sit down and read not commentaries on Augustine, but read Augustine himself, right? Because no scholar is going to give you a really, really good, perfect exposition on Augustine. You've got to read it yourself. Now, there's a humility that comes with most people like me. Who am I to sit down and read Augustine without any help, right? But to do it is a challenge. And to do it is beautiful. And to do it is to offer Augustine to be part of this clean sea breeze. All right. G.K. Chesterton, in his work, The Everlasting Man, gives us another thing to chew on. And I've made a little bit of reference to this. He talks about the everlasting man, that is Jesus, as someone who is very difficult to handle. If you've read the Gospels, you know, Jesus, he says, it's not just... um, you know, that you should respect marriage, you should never divorce, right? Jesus says, you know, to men, if you look at a woman with lust, you know, that is, that's a high sin, right? There's so many things that he has. Like I said before, who's the guy who talks more about hell? Nobody talks more about hell than Jesus. You know, that was one of the readings today in Mass, okay? Um, This idea that those who are invited to the banquet don't come, and then some guy gets in uninvited and he gets kicked out into outer darkness, all right? 
And so G.K. Chesterton um, in Everlasting Man, he comes down to this. He says, if we were just to sit down and read the Gospels, read the New Testament, without the help of the church, it would be very, very difficult for us to understand who Jesus is and what he's saying. And one reason why it's so difficult is that Jesus is not of the Roman age. He's not of the ancient world. He's not of the medieval world. He's not of the modern world. Jesus is eternal. Chesterton points to this one sentence in the book of of John, in the Gospel of John. Before Abraham was, I am. That is the everlasting man that Chesterton is talking about. That is incarnate God in time. Did Jesus come into a certain time and place into the Roman Empire? Yes. But what he said applies in all of eternity, throughout all of eternity, not just then, but now as well. And this is important for us to remember, important for us to understand. Jesus doesn't care to be relevant to a culture and a time and a place. He wants that culture, time, and place to be relevant to him, to incarnate God who has come in. Again, did he come as incarnate God in the Roman Empire? Yes. But does he come in as incarnate God in the Eucharist every time in Mass right now? Yes. It's never-ending. It's eternal. It's beautiful. And what Chesterton is really getting at here is that that clean breeze of the centuries that Lewis is referring to back in his introduction to Athanasius on the, uh, on the Incarnation, that clean breeze of the centuries coming through <clears throat> and informing our minds and our hearts and our souls is Jesus himself, the one who is eternal, the one who passes through all time, all culture, all languages, all right? Now, you say, well, Dr. Calvert, that's really nice and beautiful and wonderful and all that kind of stuff, but what about my kid, all right? And by the way, I'm a, I'm a dad, and I've seen my kids struggle with faith. You know, what's, what's tr- really amazing is that our entrance into the Catholic Church started about 40 years ago, but it was my oldest son who came to me one day and just said, Dad, I'm going to be a Catholic. And he thought, you know, we were Lutheran at the time, and here I am, this Calvinist Lutheran. I don't know what I am, but um, he said, you know, he thought I was going to be really angry. And I thought, wow, that's good, that's good, son. And I, I was at, at, the, at the Easter vigil, and I'm thinking at the Easter vigil, why am I not doing this, right? And then my daughter came in. And then my wife says, you know, I can't, I can't not do this anymore. And we were actually at the church of the, uh, of the Annunciation in Israel where there is a plaque that says, here the word was made flesh. The Annunciation, here the word was made flesh. Somewhere in place and time, God became flesh, right? And I had to go ball in the back of the church. I was crying. But, you know... Um, the, the, the idea of dealing with a culture that tells our children and our young people to abandon all of that, this is a difficult time. I have to tell you, though, it's always been a difficult time. 
Christians in the first, second, third, fifth, sixth, tenth centuries were worried about their children not wanting to follow Christ. Nothing new under the sun. Um, the great Catholic writer J.R.R. Tolkien struggled with his son, his sons Michael and Christopher over their doubts of faith. And in his letter to Michael, he writes, Out of the darkness of my own life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves on earth. And more than that, death by the divine paradox, that which ends life and demands the surrender of all, and yet be taste or foretaste, of which alone can what you seek on your earthly relationship be maintained. Or take on that complexion of reality, of eternal endurance, which every man's heart desires. All right. He goes on to tell his son, Michael, that everyone is going to doubt their faith. Everyone is going to struggle. All right. Um, He says, but it takes a fantastic will of unbelief to suppose that Jesus never really happened and more to suppose that he did not say the things recorded all of him so incapable of being invented by anyone in the world at that time, such as, before Abraham came to be, I am. There's that idea again. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus knows, understands, and preaches this idea that he is eternal. You find this in Athanasius. You find this in Lewis. You find this in Tolkien. And when we talk about the, cre- the, the, the struggles of our lives, what does Tolkien say? Go back to the Mass. Go back to the sacrament. Go back to the eternal. And that's something I say to, to the Catholic students who come to see me at, 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 uh, the, at the college, and they're struggling with their faith. I just say, just keep going back to Mass. Just keep going back. All right, be faithful to that. If you're, whatever you're struggling with, People have struggled with it before. There is nothing new under the sun. Keep going back to faith, going back to mass. All right. Even in the midst of your worst struggles or what you might consider to be your worst sins, go back. Keep going back. Because this clean breeze of the centuries, this is Jesus. And he he flows through and will blow away, wipe away, all of our doubts, all of our sins. You know, one thing that you should share with children, with young people, are your own struggles, your own doubts. I know for my, my children, it was always very helpful for them to know that this guy with, what, four degrees doesn't know something, right? You know, if my son comes to me and says, what about this? I, I don't know. Right. Um, And then let's explore this together. Let's think about that together. Or, you know, if if one of my children for a time, you know, goes off the rails. um, The idea is to make sure they understand I'm not happy with that, but also to understand that communication is never cut off. If they can't accept the mass, if they can't accept being Catholic or even being Christians. All right. Not to cut off communication. You know, that's when you hit your knees, right? 
when you when you pull out the the rosary. And by the way, as as a new Catholic, the rosary is amazing. I can't tell you. Every day, I, I can't do without it now. You know. Um, and of course, there's somebody. Atlantic Magazine says it's you know it's it's you know you know violent. Anyway, another Catholic scholar. Uh, perhaps you've heard of her, Flannery O'Connor had a, a correspondence with a young man named Alfred Korn who actually had a serious, massive struggle with his faith in college. And she wrote a couple letters to this young man to encourage him in his faith. And she says this, the reason that this clash doesn't bother me is because I have got over the years a sense of the immense sweep of creation, of how incomprehensible God must necessarily be to be the God of heaven and earth. You can't fit the Almighty into your intellectual categories. He doesn't fit into categories, right? He just doesn't. What kept me a skeptic in knowledge was precisely my Christian faith. It always said, wait, don't bite on this. Get a wider picture. Continue to read. Flannery O'Connor talks about this idea of Christian skepticism. You know, we think of skeptics as being not Christians, but the other guy, right? But what Christian skepticism is, if somebody says to you, there is no God, if somebody says to you, Jesus wasn't historical, if somebody says to you something that they think is going to destroy your faith, be skeptical about it as a Christian. Flannery O'Connor encourages the student, Alfred Korn, to let it ride itself out. Think about it for a while. Don't take it as the absolute end of your faith. But think about it. And this is something I have tried to encourage students to do and young people to do. Don't think your faith is over. All right? Don't think your faith is done. Keep thinking about it. Write it out. See where this really ends. Do you remember the prayer of that father who wanted his son to be healed? I believe. Help my unbelief. That should be on the lips of every Christian, all right? Because we are not perfect in all of our belief. And there are times when I'm at Mass where I'm, yeah, that's the body and blood of Jesus, right? But there are times when I'm thinking, huh, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. There is this humility, but at the same time, this skepticism of what the world throws at us. This is when Athanasius is going after those Epicureans who say that the world is self-begotten. It made itself. Athanasius says, think about that. How can that possibly be? We have those same ideas taught in colleges and universities today, that somehow the Big Bang just happened all of its own out of, you know, who knows what. How is that rational and reasonable? A Christian skeptic will say, hmm, let's think about this. Let's let this ride out. Read, some, read about it. One thing that Flannery O'Connor says to this young man, Alfred Korn, is that there's always a Christian answer to whatever the attack is. 
find out what that is and demand in your mind equal time for that idea as well as the idea that's thrown at you, right? Okay. So here we are. How do we work through all of this? And this is a really interesting wild time. You know, as a historian, I look back and I I can't think of a time like this. I can tell you that in studying many ancient cultures, all right, ancient cultures, as soon as they come to their height, watch out because it means that probably in the next two generations they're going to be in the tank, all right? So you have this great generation free the world of Hitler, right, and make this amazingly wealthy country, the wealth and luxury of which brings about this idea of, well, choose whatever gender I want. It doesn't matter what God says about, uh, you know, human sexuality. One, one thing I talk to my students about um, is going back to, to Eden. You know, the serpent tells Adam and Eve that they will be like gods, right? But they're already like God. They have been made in the image of God. They've, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's, that's right. It's all creation and salvation together. And, you know, the, the, the answer is that we've been given reason. We've been given spirit. These are all like God. And, like God, we can procreate. He has given us the gift of procreating, of creating young ones who are also made in the image of God. This is why in Scripture and in the church, you know, sexuality is so incredibly important. Because this is an expression of God's creation and creative ability through us in the most profound way. Do you see what I'm saying? And to throw that away, to waste that, to make little of it, to twist it, that is to twist the creator of the universe and his creative activity and what he has given us, thanks be to God. So how do we do this? Um, we've got to be courageous and we've got to cultivate courage in our own lives and in the lives of our children. We've got to do that. And courage is hard. And by the way, this is hard work. This is not easy. You know, when I was the headmaster of Hillsdale Academy and I had somebody come in and say, oh, poor Susie has to work so hard. My answer is poor Susie should be thankful for working hard. And facing difficulties because she's going to need that courage. And if someday she's going to be a martyr for the faith, which might very well be, she's got to have courage, right? I have a, we have a woman at our, 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 uh, um, our parish who has one son. Her husband died. And she said, I'm raising my son to be a martyr. And you might say, well, gosh, that sounds a little extreme. Uh-uh. Did Jesus promise that everything would be wonderful and happy? No. He promised us that we would be attacked because he was attacked, right? That's his promise. He doesn't say, I promise you that your lives are going to be wonderful and happy and smooth. In fact, the idea that if your life is wonderful and happy and smooth, it may very well be that you're not doing something right. We need to think about these things. We need to consider them. 
We need to fight for Jesus and for his church and for understanding and preaching the incarnation to renew our understanding of mortal sin and its effects. Mortal sin is a reality. All right? And we can't ignore that. I mean, it's so easy for me to go through my day and just, you know, forget the choices that I'm making. But this is a reality. We need to support our priests, our clergy, to encourage them to be the best faithful men that they can be and express to each other, encourage one another in faith, in true faith. From my point of view as a historian, it's not going to get any better. If you think we're going to go back to a nice, cozy life, it's not going to happen. All right. It's going to get harder to be Christian. It's going to be more difficult to be Catholic. Right? Because we're the evil ones who've established all these evil doctrines that make people think that they need to somehow come into line with God and Jesus. What a horrible bunch of people. So we need to be focusing on that. Pay attention to Matthew 25. Pay attention to the epistle of James. And be the kind of people in love and charity that preach truth, not only to our own children and to our communities and in our churches, but to the nation. All right. This is the clean breeze through the centuries of Christ. And, and, you know, it's a wonderful clean breeze. It's full of hope and love, but also full of hard messages. All right. A reliance on that. Reading old books, finding out how they did it, how they discovered it, how they talked about it back in the 3rd, 5th, 10th centuries. They'll teach us a lot about how to do it today. Thank you. You are listening to a very special episode of Ignite Radio Live featuring a talk from our Belief in Beverage Night. Please join us for these wonderful evenings the third Thursday of each month. Find out more information at massimpact.us forward slash BNB. Dr. Calvert, deeply grateful for your wise opening up our minds and hearts to understanding what is essential to be human, not just to be Christian, but this is essential to our humanity created for God and those fundamental elements, plus the witness of your own coming to choose that and the blessing of children that helped pave the way. That Trinitarian sense about it, I find very, shall I say, sublimely poetic in a spiritual way. Dr. Calvert, I, th- I think the greatest problem with those who are contra church, contra Christ, is that they assail the very premise that they need. They assail objective truth, but they're in that very statement asserting a kind of objective truth. It's no longer just this libre freedom, um, liberality of being open to all that is good and true. In the classical sense, it's become, interestingly enough, its own kind of uh, faith or religion that they're imposing upon us. Um, I guess my question is, at the heart of that, you typified maybe even Matthew Walsh's, Matt Walsh's, what is a woman, that sensibility we see in culture. How do we address when the good, beautiful, true, and one are the transcendentals, how do we dress this culture when they deny 
that there is objective truth itself, and it becomes a plaything, terms such as woman and marriage and sexuality. How do we even begin to engage in a evangelization? Right. So a couple things. I don't think anybody believes that there's no truth. Everybody believes that there's truth. Um, if somebody breaks into your house and kills your dog, um, somebody's going to do something back. I mean, you're going to you're going to take them to court. You're going to go to court, right? Um, if it affects me, if it hits me, I want something done, right? And so what is the truth there? The truth there is that something has been done that is, by definition, bad and therefore needs to a response. Do you see what I'm saying? Nobody doesn't believe in truth. Here's another thing is if, if, uh, if I went into the – and by the way, my time at Harvard was really interesting because we'd have these geneticists come over to the divinity school, which at Harvard actually is divinity's school, but that's, that's a whole other subject. Uh, but um, they would come over and they would say – Thank you. Uh, be sure to tip your waitress on the way out. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm here all week. Yeah, that's right. Um, that was part of, you know, Haley didn't mention that I used to be a stand-up comic. But um, the, 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 the idea was that these geneticists would come and they say, would say to us, you know, and some would come from MIT too, we can't believe that this just happened out of chance. Now, they're not, they're not um, Christians, but they, they were coming around to this point is that there has to be a mind, a capital M, that brought all this into being. This is too far-fetched to say that this is by chance. All right? And so, you know, they're beginning to deal with evidence that suggests that, that this can't be just by chance. There's got to be more to it. You know, what's, how is the Big Bang happen? You know, the physicists are the other ones who, in my, my mind, tend to be religious. Uh, most often Hindu, but they, they tend to, to, to wander into religion because they're dealing with such eternal scope and the existence of things that they can't explain. And the only way they can explain it is if there is something that created it, right? So you can begin to talk to some of these people along those lines. Here's another thing. If, if I, at Harvard, if I went into the biology department and said I was a creationist, what would they say? There's no truth to it. That's not true, right? So, you know, there is this idea that on the one side of our culture, there's this idea, well, I can make up whatever I want. And on the other side of the culture, well, you have to listen to the science because the science tells you what's true, right? I mean, didn't we hear that all through COVID? Of course, we found out how well that worked. But, um, you know, I have a relative who had every shot under the world and had masks upon masks, and he had COVID three times. I had it once. wasn't happy, but, you know, there you go. Anyway, so, uh, you know, th- th- there is a desire within the hearts of everyone to know truth. Okay, there has to be a truth to answer evil that's done to me in the world. There has to be a truth that helps us understand how all of this creation operates there has to be a truth, all right? The problem is, and we're human beings, and you look back at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the problem is that I don't want that truth really to tell me who I am and what I should do. I am somehow a god. 
I am a God. I am an independent agent. Right? And that's what Satan was telling to Adam and Eve. You can be gods. When clearly they could not. I mean, who among us could really be a god? Right? Now, if you're 18, you might think so. You know, once you get to 60, you begin to realize that, you know, this is getting out of hand. Um, and it's, it's, it's the way life is. There are no gods other than God, right? And so it's a, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see how all of this is going to play itself out over the next two, three decades. You know, how this is going to play itself out because it can't, it can't survive. All right. Babies need to be born. And there's really still only one way that babies can be born. And whatever we think we can say about sexuality or what have you, man and woman, right? It is, it is um, man and woman and several hundred emotional disorders. That's really what we're looking at. And when you look at the, 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 the amount of people who have those emotional disorders, it's, it's well below 10%. All right? And this is where I think it's very, very important to be charitable and to be loving to those people. Now, we can't let this dominate our culture. We can't let this be a dominant theme in our schools. To promote and instill in these babies the kinds of things that are being promoted and instilled. But we also need to be, um, we need to be truthful, but we also need to be charitable. And, and, and this is where I think that the more truthful we are, the more angry this is going to get. But I don't see how we cannot be truthful. Yeah. Dr. Calvert, first, um, thank you for the insights of your long education that you have so cogently and beautifully shared with us tonight. I appreciate it so much. I, too, am a convert. Um, Over the last year, somebody gave me a a, a Miamian. Oh, hey. (laughs) About a year ago, someone gave me the four-volume books of Venerable Mary of Agreed of Spain, on the mystical city of God and her revelations of Mary's life to her. So she wrote it in 1617. So because God is not bound by time and sees all things in non-time, he obviously had the foreknowledge of the fall, but he had given the gift of free will that it might not, didn't necessarily have to happen. So the revelation to Venerable Mary of Agreda was that the cross, the theology of the cross and salvation and redemption is extraordinarily important, but the incarnation even more so. The incarnation is the pinnacle because had Adam and Eve not fallen and the cross would not have been necessary, Jesus would have been incarnated anyway in order to reveal more about the Father and to be in fellowship in the flesh with human beings that he had created. As an evangelical, you're looking at the cross and salvation as the ultimate story. Well, hey, you know, 
I said the Jesus prayer, I'm going home. But the incarnation becomes profoundly Catholic is what they're saying. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, boy, uh, it would be a couple of hours. Um, and a little bit of shameless self-promotion. I did a, a, an interview with Marcus Grodi on EWTN on Coming Home, and we, we talked about this. If you want to look it up, it might be helpful. Mary uh, is the vehicle for the incarnation, and for nine months she carries God. And uh, even now his DNA is her DNA, even now. I mean, what a what a remarkable, overwhelming idea that is. And that, yeah, you know, I mean, the whole question that theologians ask is, would that have happened without the fall? Um, was the fall in a way necessary? And uh, you you know the phrase that we sing at the, the Easter vigil, "Oh, happy fault," right? That through the fall, the incarnation takes place and the cross and the resurrection. So the fullness of God's message to us, his revelation of himself, the fullness of that comes in all of those, all of those stories, that whole of salvation history. And why does he do it? I, you know, why do the angels fall? Why, you know, does this all take place? We don't know. Only God knows. But at, in the end, it will all be made complete. You are listening to a very special episode of Ignite Radio Live, featuring a talk from our Belief in Beverage Night. Please join us for these wonderful evenings, the third Thursday of each month. Find out more information at massimpact.us forward slash BNB. BNB.